Where can you find out more about real spies? Good afternoon, listeners, and welcome to Season 3, Episode 3 of the Real Spies, Real Lives podcast. This is where we talk about writing spies and writing about spies. I'm your host, espionage author P.A. Duncan. This week I thought I'd talk a bit about some other espionage-related podcasts you can listen to. I mean, I appreciate everyone who listens to my very amateur podcast, and I hope you keep listening. But if you're really interested in the world of real spies, there are lots of informative and interesting podcasts out there. Some of the best of them are done by former intelligence officers. Now, you may ask, how can they do that? I'm not, and never was, a member of an intelligence organization, and my podcasts are based on research, not real-life experience. Research is, of course, secondhand, and former intelligence officers' podcasts are always about events and aspects that have been declassified, and in some cases, the officers doing the podcast, and they're usually ex-CIA here in in the States, talk about events and operations that they weren't involved in. But they're always very careful about making sure that it's declassified. Otherwise, the CIA would get really upset with them, and they have pensions, and it would not be very nice. If you go to any podcast platform, for example, like Spotify, and you search for spies or espionage, you'll get a really diverse list of choices. I'm going to talk about a few that I've listened to regularly and some others I've used for research. For my search for podcasts, I generally use Spotify. It just happens to be my favorite platform for music and for podcasts. But a search on any podcast platform will turn up plenty of interesting podcasts. And if you're not a podcast person, many espionage podcasters also have blogs, Facebook pages, or Instagram accounts where you can go and get the same information you would get on their podcasts. Now, a great side effect of an espionage search on podcast platforms is that you also get some great espionage music playlists. I'm listening to one titled Espionage, compiled by someone named Urban Angel. The music on it is great. I generally listen to music when I write, and this playlist, I can tell is going to be really inspiring. I'm going to talk first about a podcast called Spycraft 101. The podcaster refers to this as your clandestine classroom. 
I've been reading the Facebook posts and the blog and listening to the podcast for a little over a year, and I've learned a lot. The producer of this well-researched and fascinating material is named Justin Black, and I hope that's a pseudonym because that's a spy name if I've ever heard one. I almost wish he'd share his source for the historical photos he uses. Sometimes he does. They're, they're a story within themselves, and he often does interviews for his podcasts, and the guests are fascinating. One of the first Spycraft 101 episodes I read was about a British Army clandestine unit in Northern Ireland in the early 1970s. The piece was so engaging, I did additional research and ended up writing the rough draft of a novel on the aftermath of this clandestine unit. Now, I've studied a lot of espionage history, and as a child of the Cold War, I remember some of the events he's written about, but he also has found some of the most obscure and interesting facts of espionage history. You can find Spycraft 101 on Facebook and Instagram and the podcast of the same name on all major podcast platforms. On the Spycraft 101 website, there's also a small store with some really cool spy-related things for sale, like a series of Russian stamps or Soviet stamps of Soviet heroes and actual Soviet rubles from back during the Cold War. It really is an interesting sight. If you're more interested in the lives of actual spies, the Parcast Espionage podcast profiles the lives and missions of real spies on both sides of the Cold War divide. There's another podcast I've listened to called True CIA Spy Missions. Again, lots of details and some surprises now that a lot of missions have been declassified. And some of these podcasts are even practical in nature. Everyday Espionage features a former intelligence officer who talks about real-world espionage techniques that you can put to practical use in real life. That's really interesting, and I've used it for research for my writing. Now, one of the first espionage podcasts I started listening to a couple of years ago was called Thrill is Gone by Keenan Duffy. He was going through each John Le Carré book, kind of, taking it apart. He'd read the reviews. He'd read some of the critiques of it. And he would also use some other classic espionage books in the same way. In the middle of the pandemic, sometime late in 2020, the podcast just stopped. For months, I'd check back periodically to look for a new episode, but nothing. Now, that was understandable in the midst of a plague, but since then, the podcast is gone, the episodes taken down. The espionage book he wrote called Paris Circle is out of print. Thank goodness I got a copy on my Kindle. 
And his Thrill is Gone Facebook page is gone too. That makes me kind of fear the worst. But it was a well done and informative podcast. Why don't you go to my podcast Facebook page, the Real Spies Real Lives podcast on Facebook, and tell me some of your favorite espionage podcasts and music playlists. I'm always looking for something new to listen to while I clean the house or do the dishes or cook. I'm happy to announce that the reader magnet for my new series is now available and it's free via an app called Book Funnel. So if you go to dl.bookfunnel, one word, dot com slash v-p-a-y-a-s-t-e-k-c, you can download and read the story out of the ordinary. Now you may have to download the free Book Funnel app to be able to read the story, but depending on the browser, you can sometimes just read it in your browser. You don't have to download it at all. What you can't do is download it to your Kindle. Sorry about that. I wanted to make the reader magnet free and I can't do that except for five days a quarter on Amazon. I'll put the URL for the download in the description for this episode so that you can go take a look. I hope you go have a read and leave a review on my podcast Facebook page. And the free story is going to be available until June 15th. Of course, you can also find the rest of my works at Amazon.com slash author slash Phyllis Duncan. No space between Phyllis and Duncan. And that's the commercial for this episode. Last week, I read some excerpts from that reader magnet. So I thought this week... I'd read some excerpts from book one of that new series. The series is Meeting the Enemy, and book one is titled Terror. The only setup needed is that book one begins on September 11th, 2001, in New York City. My Fisher, now retired from being a spy, is looking at real estate in number two World Trade Center when the second plane strikes it. Alexei Bukharin, knowing she's there, arrives on scene in time to see that tower collapse with Mai inside. Believing she's dead, he makes his way to the UN complex in New York City. Meeting the Enemy, Book One, Terror, Untitled Chapter, UN Complex, New York, New York. Along with most of Manhattan, 
the United Nations building, school, and associated facilities had evacuated, leaving behind the contract security, who protected the buildings, and a contingent of the UN security forces, employees who often did more than protect. The New York UNSEC four commander, Mason Wallace, had taken up the monitoring of events from the small operations center at the United Nations Intelligence Directorate substation on the grounds. On-site operatives and analysts were connected to Directorate headquarters outside Washington, D.C. Directorate stations from around the world were sending intel and listening post data. And whether it came to New York or D.C., it was shared. Wallace normally wouldn't be read in on this, but Nelson at headquarters made an exception, since the substation chief was out of town. What Nelson knew that no one else did was that the substation chief had been on the flight that had left Boston headed for Los Angeles, but had crashed into the North Tower instead. Wallace was the most senior person with appropriate clearance among the personnel left at the U.N. complex. But he was glad when a dust-covered Alexei Bukharin and half his UNSEC-4 team arrived from their six-mile hike from where the Twin Towers had been. Bukharin would know what to do with the operatives and analysts who were looking for guidance from someone who knew what he was doing. Wallace had done a head count and frowned. Ursula? he asked. Who? was Bukharin's flat reply. The team lead, tall, German? I split the team because she was insistent upon going to Eagle Papa. She took half the team and went to the CIA office. I've been unable to contact them. So, my? Wallace asked. Bukharin said nothing, his eyes looking at nothing. One of the team members looked at Wallace and shook his head. Wallace swallowed the lump in his throat. He'd deal with his feelings about that later. Bukharin was the best operative the directorate had had in its 55 years of existence, but his talent for analysis was second to none, except perhaps my Fisher, his wife. Wallace's emotions at the knowledge that she was what? Buried? Dead? Missing? Whatever he felt, he suppressed, because there were other matters at hand, and she would never want people grieving over her. He could do nothing for her now, but he could do what he could to bring justice to the bastards who'd done this to her, and probably thousands of others. The first thing Wallace had done was have medics look over everyone who'd been at the World Trade Center when the first building collapsed. Bukharin's eyes were clotted with dust and required immediate attention. On the hike here, one of the medics with him had continually rinsed his eyes with an eyewash solution. Bukharin had a mobile phone in hand and kept dialing a number. Once the medics cleared him, he'd cleaned up a bit and returned to the operations center, standing in his dust-laden suit next to Wallace. Would you... Bukharin stopped. His dry throat had emitted only a croak. Some water from a bottle in his hand, and he tried again. Would you bring me up to date 
from since I left here with the team? Bukharin asked. The wall of monitors each showed satellite images and reports from different locations. The World Trade Center, the Pentagon, a field somewhere in Pennsylvania, news reports and reactions from around the world. There was a disconcerting sameness to them. Over and over again, the South, then the North Tower collapsed. Wallace cleared his throat and said, At least 19 men hijacked four commercial aircraft within minutes of each other. Three of them hit their targets, the Twin Towers here and the Pentagon in D.C. The fourth one, according to intercepted cell phone conversations from that plane, something extraordinary happened. The passengers banded together, charged the cockpit, overcame the hijackers, and apparently crashed that plane. A projected trajectory given its course indicated it might have been headed for the White House or the U.S. Capitol. A brave gesture, but ultimately impractical. What do you mean? I assume the hijackers killed the pilots and took over flying the airplanes. Bukharin said, well, that's what we think. When the passengers overcame the hijackers, there was no one left to fly the plane. My Fisher was a pilot, Wallace thought. She could have flown the plane. Why was she at the World Trade Center? Why couldn't she have been on one of the planes? Wasn't that every pilot's secret fantasy to step in and save the day? Wallace kept those thoughts to himself. He and Bukharin watched the hole in Pennsylvania burn, the Pentagon burn, and a pile of rubble of an unimaginable size in Manhattan burn, a fire that had apparently immolated my Fisher and who knew how many thousands of others. No doubt Bukharin had already agonized over the irony that my had survived the machinations of the Cold War, various ethnic conflicts, and right-wing extremists in America, only to become a victim of what the unenlightened media were calling jihad. In a way, it was far too mundane an ending for her. Wallace needed to stop thinking about that. Bukharin pointed to an empty desk. Is anyone using that station? he asked. No, it's yours if you want it. In, in fact, I'm glad you're here. You'll be better at determining what needs to go to Nelson and what could be handled by other stations. Bukharin said nothing and headed to the desk. He sat, pulled a box of tissues closer to him, and reached for the phone. Over the next hour, Bukharin's activity would thrill anyone with OCD. He wiped his eyes, discarded the tissue, dialed a number on the phone, listened, and hung up. And it started all over again. The computer on the desk remained dark. Wallace donned a headset and typed commands into his own computer to listen in on Bukharin's calls. He was dialing Mai's mobile, listening over and over again to the outgoing for her voicemail. Mai's British accent came through Wallace's headset. You have reached 703-555-8329. I am unable to take your call. Leave a message. Thank you. That was my, succinct, almost abrupt, 
the thank you almost an afterthought. Was Bukharin calling in the vain hope she would answer? Or did he simply want to hear her voice? Was this some obscure Russian form of mourning? Bukharin certainly looked like a mourner, his clothing torn in places from his encounter with the debris cloud, ashes in his hair. He was a man who needed something meaningful to do. Wallace removed his headset and went to the station Bukharin occupied. Mindful not to startle him, Wallace laid a hand on his shoulder. Alexei, we need that line for emergency communications. Too bad, was the reply. I could use your help. Bukharin looked up at him with narrowed eyes. What could I possibly do? Wallace couldn't tell if his tone meant he was willing to help or if he were inconsolable. He opted to assume the former. Someone who knows the business needs to work with analysis here. This is only a substation. They don't have experience with something like this and could use a steadying hand, not to mention someone who knows what he's doing. Headquarters has compiled a list of suspects. They want every station to weigh in on them, compare them against the FBI's list. Bukharin frowned and dabbed at his runny eyes. The FBI has suspect names this soon? Nelson said something had been in the works for weeks. He used the CIA to pass along a report to President Arbust, a, a report that indicated a terrorist group was determined to strike in the U.S. soon. But the Arbust administration ignored it because they thought it came from the previous administration. Bukharin's hands fisted on the desktop. They ignored intelligence about the possible terrorist attack? Wallace shrugged and said, I'm not a politician, so... Bukharin shook his head. No matter the administration, they never learn. Where do you want me? Analysis. Come with me. Dealing with analysts was busy work. Alexei accepted that. But he also accepted he needed to refocus his thoughts, then get them away from the fact that by the time anyone found Mai's body, if they ever did, there'd be nothing left. The fire, the falling debris, would have burned or ripped off her clothing. If he were lucky, he'd get only bones with perhaps a hank of desiccated flesh attached. That was the image he needed to dismiss. Not long ago, she'd insisted he know the location of her will. He was a Ukrainian raised as a Russian. He knew better than to welcome bad things into the house. He'd ignored her request until she'd opened the desk drawer at home and pointed to a folder. Had her intuition, which had saved them more than once, become prescience? The thought struck him that Roshin O'Shea lay dead with Mai. He'd never lived up to Roshin's expectations for a husband for Mai. Once, Roshin had tried to bribe him to divorce Mai. When that hadn't worked, she'd hired a woman to seduce him in the hope the fabricated photographic evidence of infidelity would convince Mai to divorce him. But Mai never did what others expected or wanted. 
He suspected that was why they'd remained married. Rather, that was why she remained married to him. He'd never begrudged Roshin's concern for Mai's well-being, and if he and Mai couldn't die together, at least she hadn't been alone. Mai would have gone kicking and screaming into death, fighting to the last spark of electricity in her brain to defy it. That tightened his throat, brought different moisture to his eyes. He pushed all thought of her away. He would mourn, he would weep for her, but not in front of strangers. Natalia, his granddaughter, whom he secretly thought of as his and Mai's daughter, since they'd raised her for most of her life so far. How could he tell her she'd lost another mother? He took out his mobile and dialed Natalia's number in Cambridge, that damned busy circuit's message again. He compartmentalized Natalia as well. A soft clearing of a throat got his attention. The group of analysts Mason Wallace had wanted him to herd had assembled, their faces open with expectation. Boy, when did they get so young? For that matter, when had he gotten so old? When, a few hours ago, a building had fallen and crushed the only thing that made his life worth living. For those of you who don't know me, Alexei began, I'm Alexei Bukharin. Alexei, not Mr. Bukharin nor Alex. I'm the former senior directorate agent out of headquarters. I'm currently a special advisor to the head of the directorate. Introduce yourselves to me. Name, area of specialty. They followed his orders, but the name skittered into his brain and out again. After today, he'd never see any of them again. You are here to first compare our list of suspects against the FBI's. Second, to correlate known intel and develop a conclusive report on who was responsible for the planning and logistics of this attack and who could afford that planning and logistics for what amounts to the use of weapons of mass destruction. Ask your questions now. A mousy-looking woman, long, pointed nose, and a round face, raised a hand and said, Um, Mr. B... Um, Alexei? A WMD? They were airplanes. I've also been a weapons inspector, and WMD can take many forms, including hijacked airplanes, as we now know. Well, surely someone could have predicted that, someone said. This was in no way typical of the historical record of hijackings. I'm not sure anyone could have predicted this particular modus operandi. My might have, he thought, and pushed her away again. WMDs need to involve a nation-state, another analyst said. Let's see how good they are, Alexei thought. Address that conclusion, he said. The mousy woman replied, Well, WMD are, like, prohibitively expensive, and it's hard to cover your tracks in procuring and using them. Yeah, another voice chimed in. Only a government could have access to WMDs. 
Really, Alexei said. I recall a WMD used six years ago, built by private citizens and used against a federal building. The cost to assemble and deliver it was considerably less than $10,000. Oh, right. Today, Alexei said, the weapons were fuel-laden aircraft, no need for government access to resources or materiel, and the costs involved were airline tickets for, we think, 19 people. What else? Mousy said, This is key, I think. You have to have or develop the, like, mindset to kill hundreds, if not thousands of people, innocent people, in order to make your point, you have to be willing to kill indiscriminately. This one had quite the analytical mind. She reminded him of Mai in that. His throat tightened again and he cleared it with a slight cough before he spoke again. The IRA, he said, the original one, sometimes had the means and the opportunity for WMD. But they stuck to smaller bombs and military targets. Why do you think that was? Mousy piped up right away. Because they knew large numbers of casualties would turn people away from their cause, as the real IRA discovered after OMA. What does that difference tell us about today's attackers? Alexei asked. The analysts exchanged glances, but Mousy again was the spokesperson that the point of today's attack, the material used to conduct it, was to effect mass casualties, that they've overcome any moral qualms about the non-wartime use of a WMD. Her eyes widened as something dawned on her, that they consider themselves in a war. Excellent, Alexei said. Continue. Hamas and Hezbollah have targeted civilians indiscriminately? No, only Israelis. But even though they might have informal backing from Syria or Iran, they don't have the full resources of a nation. Saddam Hussein, another analyst asked. Mousy again answered, and Alexei smiled inwardly. Saddam's a danger only to his own people and little else, she said. As she'd spoken, she'd looked Alexei right in the eye without hesitation. He liked this young woman. She was going to go far. You were on that inspection team, weren't you? She asked. Alexei nodded. So you'd agree he's not involved. Alexei nodded again and said, Don't discount domestic terrorism. You mean like the Kansas City bombing you mentioned? Mousy asked him. Yes. As I am well aware, America's ultra-conservative extremists have the resources to fund, design, and deliver WMDs. Mousy shook her head. She disagreed with him. Even better. Today's targets are all wrong for them, she said with confidence. They go for what they hate the government. So if they'd hit the Capitol, I'd say it was them. But the country's financial center and the headquarters of the nation's military are things the right wing wants to preserve, even enhance.
Agreed. External agents, then, Alexei said. What countries have the financial means and or the political inclination to do this? An Asian man said, Russia or China, at least the financial part. Not Russia, Alexei said. The Asian man looked around at his colleagues and said, But, sir, you'd say that, wouldn't you? Because of my name? Alexei pinned the young man with a stare that made him look away. I've been an American longer than I was a Russian, and I was born in Ukraine. We hold little love for Russia. I said not Russia because it has no need to attack us. If it did, it wouldn't do so in such an asymmetrical manner. Russians are hard to break out of a habit, and now, frankly, they're too busy garnering Western investment in the country's businesses. I'll concede in a few more years, Cargan might switch tactics. However, that's not part of your assignment. China? China wanted to conquer the West with trade deficits and buying up countries' debts. It wouldn't sponsor an operation that might bring American nuclear might its way, especially when they have an unequal capacity to respond. But you discounted Hussein, said the Asian man. He likes sneak attacks. Against his personal enemies, yes, not against other nations. His war with Iran was a conventional one, excluding the biological warfare. He practically advertised his attack on Kuwait. Plus, he does things on the whim. Today was not a whim. And he's still trying to recover from the last time America went to war against him. All right. External agents with a global reach, a sneak attack but well-planned, and with a degree of coordination that implies logistical acumen. Iran, Mousy said, is too absorbed in purifying its own populace, even though they might be cheering right now. Do you eliminate them? Alexei asked her. She frowned. Not yet, but I wouldn't put them at the top of the list. It's a country beneath the usual intelligence radar, yet capable of planning a multi-prong attack. Alexei pointed a finger at her. Or a country willing to look the other way when plots and plans are created within its borders. But would it have to be a country? Mousy looked at him again, her wide eyes and pointed nose emphasizing the ill-conceived nickname he called her in his thoughts. That would mean... Yes, it would. Don't leave that out of your report. Your conclusions must be justified. Two hours. Everyone except Mousy muttered at that, and everyone except Mousy scurried away to get to work. What? Alexei barked. Mousy winced. You already know, don't you? I suspect. And all that is speculation until I get that report. She nodded and went to do her job. Alexei had left the UN complex behind him and walked to his nearby hotel. Inside, he planned to avoid looking at the bed until he realized the maids had already cleaned the room and erased the evidence that he and Mai had made love early that morning. Only a few hours ago, 
but seeming like forever. He showered for a long time, the waters sluicing off him, running black, gray, and clear at last. He redressed in a suit and shirt, but left a tie behind. He emptied the pockets of his dirty clothing and took only cash from his wallet and a small key from his key ring. The last thing he did was remove his wedding ring, one Mai had never put on his finger. He laid it on the dresser, the silver standing out against the dark color of the wood. He thought about putting it back on. Russian men never removed their wedding rings. It was bad luck. To do so meant leaving a marriage behind. Before his defection, he'd removed the wedding band he'd worn for two years after his first wife died and dropped it in the Moskva River. His second marriage, the one that had lasted ten times longer than his first, the one that he'd worked so hard to keep, had died with Mai. He'd bought and worn this ring to show her his commitment, but she'd never cared whether he wore it or not. Best to leave it behind with the detritus of a life he'd never know again. He thought as well about leaving a note for his son or his granddaughter, but they might interpret it as a suicide note. He had too much to do before he died, and when his time came, he'd find a way to tell them goodbye. From a drawer, he took Mai's laptop and emailed Nelson. That done, he put the laptop back exactly as he'd found it, atop the precisely folded practical underwear that was Mai's. Someone, either from the directorate or whichever O'Shea would replace Roshin, would take care of this. How many times in 23 years had he slipped a pair of these underwear off her hips? He closed the drawer. He'd left the hotel on foot and headed for the Bronx. All of New York's bridges had been closed to vehicular traffic, but hordes of people walked across them, headed for Long Island, Queens, and other boroughs. He'd watched some news before he left the hotel and had seen tour boats ferrying people to Staten Island or New Jersey. As he walked, he read the fear on people's faces but they also wanted to help. Store owners and restaurant staff pressed bottles of water or sandwiches into his or others' hands, had spoken words of consolation, had blessed him. He took the food and water, accepted the condolences, but acknowledged none of it. He was reminded of earlier this year, when they'd buried his mother, and the three days of mourning where people came to pay their respects leaving money and food to go in the coffin. When the body was finally recovered, the O'Sheas would wake Mai, according to Irish custom, likely have a requiem mass that Mai wouldn't have wanted, but those things were for the comfort of the survivors. The dead didn't give a damn. Long past the time anyone else would have dropped from exhaustion, Alexei continued to walk, the benefit of staying in shape. When darkness became his shield, he slowed down, his cold gaze seeking the tools he'd need to steal a car. The police were too busy right now to deal with a stolen vehicle. He would also have plenty of options and opportunities at his disposal. At one of the area's ubiquitous construction sites, 
now abandoned for the day, he found a pickup truck with a toolbox in its bed. A chunk of brick and brute force popped the cheap lock, and Alexei had what he wanted. He walked on, following the signs for a commuter rail station. There he waited in the dark a while longer. Plenty of cars remained in the almost full lot. Their owners hadn't walked this far, were still trapped in Manhattan, or lay buried at the World Trade Center. Alexei picked a neutral-colored Honda sedan that would blend well with any road traffic. He was glad the metal shim he'd lifted from the toolbox popped the door lock, and he didn't have to use the wrench he'd also taken to break a window. People would notice a car with a broken window. Using his jacket, he wiped the wrench down to remove his fingerprints and tossed it under a nearby car. Behind the wheel, he checked all the places someone would leave a spare key and came up empty. He inserted the other tool he'd taken, a long screwdriver, in the key set and twisted. The car started with no problem. He checked the dash instruments. Luck was with him. He'd selected a car whose tank was almost full. Alexei hid the screwdriver between the seat and the console and followed the signs from the parking lot to a main highway, keeping to the speed limit on a route he'd memorized long ago. He drove through the rest of the night, stopped for gas in eastern Connecticut, and arrived in Bangor, Maine, early in the morning of September 12th. All right, that's enough for today. That's a taste of things to come in June, as a matter of fact. The manuscript is with my editor right now, and it should be back with her changes in late February. I'll incorporate her edits and add any scenes she suggests in March. April will be formatting. May will be the final proofread and the pre-order. And June will be the launch. More details to come in the next few weeks. Don't forget about the Reader Magnet giveaway. The link will be in the description to this episode. Don't forget as well to protect yourself and your family from the Omicron COVID variant. You know the drill. Masks, preferably the medical variety. Hand washing, social distancing. Last week in my entire state, there were only 132 ICU beds available, and emergency rooms were sending non-critical patients to urgent care. And then we inaugurated a governor who promptly removed the requirements for children to wear masks in school and eliminated the vaccination requirement for state workers. That's the big difference between electing a venture capitalist or a doctor for your governor. But this isn't a political podcast. So keep yourself safe from COVID, but don't forget to keep an eye out for spies. The proceeding has been a production of Unexpected Paths Media, Copyright 2022, all rights reserved. 
Join us next week for a new episode of the Real Spies, Real Lives podcast.